Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The shark bait has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe. And so it welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take, myself and Matt Macklin you know manning the bridge. As always, and for today's episode, we are going to deliver something that we promised uh, a little while ago, because a few weeks back, if you remember, if you caught the episode we did with Brian Dugan, the author, then you'll know that we took a deep dive into the fight between Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard, got into all aspects of it, the build-up, how the fight happened, what happened during fight week, what happened in the ring, what happened in the immediate aftermath, how it kind of pin down its place in history. And people seem to really enjoy that. We we definitely enjoyed it. It was it was really, really interesting to get into the real bones of a fight. So we thought we would do some more of those uh, and pick out some some big fights from recent history. And with the help of some expert insight, we would we would get into into some more. And we've chosen another one today. Now I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that this was the biggest fight that any British fighter has been in in the last 20 years. Now, there have been some big ones, so it is quite a bold call. You think about some of the fights that Joe Calzaghe had, uh, Amir Khan too, Frotch Groves, of course, Anthony Joshua has shut down Wembley twice, Cardiff twice. There have been some big ones. Lewis Tyson, that was a really big fight. But this one... It was between two undefeated fighters, December 2007. See how long it takes you to, to, to guess which one it is. A lot of you will have got it already. Two undefeated fighters, 138-0, 143-0. And when you've got two O's, then there really is no limit to the amount that you can hyper fight. And it was huge. It was absolutely huge because it definitely spilled over from the boxing world. It was huge in the boxing world, but it spilled over from that into the mainstream, which... 
these days is a serious achievement. I say these days, it was a few years ago, but since TV and media became more fragmented, basically, since terrestrial TV ceased to be the only show in town, then that kind of that kind of interest, that mainstream interest was was harder to achieve. But this fight definitely, definitely achieved that. And it was Floyd Mayweather against Ricky Hatton. And Matt's perfect for this because he knew the team really well. He was in the corner on the night. He, he was over there for the preparations for a, for a good few weeks. Knows Ricky Hatton very, very well. And another man at ringside is a smooth voice of Five Live Boxing, the BBC's boxing correspondent, Mike Costello, who had a great view from just a few feet away. He was nearly as close as Matt. I wasn't quite so close. I was, I was in my mate's flat in Baker Street getting the kind of consumer's uh, eye view playing Guitar Hero and getting shit-faced and trying not to fall asleep before the main event, which I did manage to do. I don't remember much about the undercard. I'll, 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 um, I'll fess up on that front, but I was definitely alive and kicking when the first bell went. So first of all, what do you make of that, of that claim I made, Dad, that this is the biggest fight that a British fighter has been in in, in the last 20 years? Mike, Mike, you first. Would you agree with that or would you not agree? I think you can mount a persuasive argument. You make a good point about Lennox Lewis against Mike Tyson. And I would also throw in, again, because of the, the heavyweight connotations and, and what the heavyweight division brings to the sport, Anthony Joshua's return rematch against Andy Ruiz Jr. in Saudi Arabia last year. I think that that felt really massive at the time because of the the impact that could have on the sport because of how important Anthony Joshua and, and of course, now Tyson Fury have on the sport. But I often say that there, there are three types of fight. There's the fight that we're interested in, only those of us in boxing are interested in. There's the fight that people who are interested in sport generally take an interest in. And then there's that third category, which is a very specialist category where people are not necessarily even interested in sport follow the fight as well. And and that definitely fell into that third category. It felt massive. And I always know from friends who text me saying good luck with the commentary or, or editors and producers who, who never text. But you know it's really big. It's really important when you get texts from people that you've not spoken to in a good while. And it was a great era for British boxing as well. In I think within the last four or five weeks before that fight, Joe Kalzaki had beaten Mikhail Kessler on a massive night indoors at the Millennium Stadium, as it was called at the time, and David Hay had beaten Jean-Marc Mormet. So you had these three figures, David Hay, Joe Kalzaki, and Ricky Hatton, who really transcended sport. And they were bigger than, than just boxing. And I know that from my experience working not just on a sports network, but a news and sports network. So I have to battle for boxing's place on the network, not just against other sports, but against other stories. And it was much easier to do that in that era with those names that were so recognisable to everybody, to news editors as well as sports editors. And Hatton was a massive part of that. And, and I was just thinking in the last couple of days, you know, having been asked by you two guys to, to come on about, it, there's almost a poignancy about it. I mean, imagine that fight now when we can't have fans. It just wouldn't have been the event that we're all talking about. We remember it so fondly. Yes, it was, it was a good fight. It was an enthralling fight, but it was quite some distance from being a classic. 
But what made it was was the fans, the build-up, the, the differences in their personalities, their boxing styles. But the whole event was made by a great chunk of Britain just <laughs> almost emigrating to Las Vegas for a couple of weeks to, to build the fight. It's just an amazing noise, and it's one of those that just could not have happened without fans. It, it was absolutely extraordinary, and and I know what you mean about indicators as to whether something is is really that big or as to how big it actually is, because... I was thinking to myself, I didn't have Sky at the time. I couldn't, I couldn't get a dish. There was something going on with my landlord and I can't really remember what it was, to be honest. But I was thinking, who's, who's flat am I going to invite myself around to and insist that they get the pay-per-view? I'll even pay for it myself. They don't really have to watch it. I just need their living room for the night. And then I just got loads of offers, loads of offers, people just saying, yeah, I'm going to buy the fight. People who I previously thought had no real interest in boxing at all, to be honest. And that that for me just made me realise this is... This is really caught fire. Matt, you were right on the inside of it. When, when you're in the eye of the storm, it can be really hard to, to know exactly how something is growing and snowballing outside of that, of that inner sanctum. Did you get the sense that this was taking on a life of its own, really? Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. I mean, Rick, Ricky Hatton had been a, a huge, you know, he'd been a big name, huge name in Britain, British boxing, British sport. For a while before that, really. I mean, I remember the Costa Sue fight and there being something in the air that night, Costa Sue being a, a legend and all the rest of it. And, you know, when he beat Costa Sue, he went to another level. Then he went over to America. Then he put Carlos Maza. Then he went over to America. And, and he was building in America. And I think the, um, the Louis Castillo fight took his fame to another level. You know, Wayne Rooney carried out the belts. There was... A lot of the footballers went over there for their holidays to watch the fight. And, you know, he wasn't just on the back pages then. He was on the front pages. So his profile definitely hit another level. And, of course, he got Castillo out of there. I think it was the fourth round, third or fourth round with the body shot. And, you know, afterwards, Max Kellerman sort of teed him up. Did he have anything to say to Floyd Mayweather? And, of course, Ricky being witty and funny, you know, said, yeah, you know, I think you see more excitement in those four rounds than you've seen in Floyd's whole career. And Floyd having the ego he has... You know, it was like, oh, I'm coming out of retirement, make that fight. And um, so it was set up nicely. And then, of course, the build-up, as Mike said, you've got two absolute polar opposites in terms of personalities, the training camps. You know, Billy Graham, completely different to Roger Mayweather, how they see boxing, how they went about preparation. I mean, it won, I think, their 24-7 won an Emmy Award. It was just, it was an unbelievable piece of television of which I shamefully played a star in rolling, which I, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. But anyway, I mean, being over there at the time, we'd, we'd been over there for a few weeks for the Castillo fight in Vegas, had a house four miles off the, the strip. Obviously, they had everything kept the same for the Mayweather one. But, I mean, definitely the press that came in, it just gripped the nation. And even though we were in Las Vegas, you, you were hearing bits, you were getting, you were seeing, you were getting bits, and it wasn't, Social media wasn't really around then like it is now. I think it was just starting to come, wasn't it? Facebook and different things. But no, it was uh, without a doubt when we were over there that fight week, there was just, I'd never been around anything quite like it. I mean, and, and as Mike rightly says, it, they were literally coming in by the plane loads. It was unbelievable. Like from the Tuesday, there was quite a lot of people coming. Wednesday, double, <laughs> triple that amount. And by Thursday, the place was just taken over. Like the MGM Grand was like being in Deansgate. It was just mental. 
wasn't it, Mike? Oh, it was it was absolutely fantastic. And I remember earlier in the year, in January, he fought Juan Durango in, in Vegas. It was at the Paris Hotel, and it was a much smaller affair. But I often say, you know, if if you could build a, a template, uh, a blueprint for university students who are studying PR or promotion as to how to build a name in a foreign country, in a strange land. Ricky Hatton, from that point onwards, the way he engaged with the media on that first trip, I remember in the Las Vegas Review Journal, after he went home in January, they said, we were thinking of telling customs to stop him at the airport because we've so fallen in love with him, we wanted to stay here all the time because he brought a flavour to boxing that the Americans just had never witnessed before. This kind of the humour that he brought. I remember when it, when the press conference uh, on the, you know, the final press conference during fight week started, Urango was already sat down and Hatton walked along the back, tapped him on the shoulder and then shook his hand. And it was as if any kind of venom that Urango had was drained from him. You know, at that point in the week when he's, he's trying to start to hate Hatton, Hatton taps him on the shoulder and shakes his hand. I mean, it was very different during the Mayweather week, but it, it was really interesting watching that development. And then there came the, the Castillo fight that you talk about, Matt, and, and, and his, you know, his interview with Kellerman afterwards. And how it, it kind of all built from there. It, it was a long way from an overnight success. It was, it was really brilliantly done by by Hatton and, and the people around him. But but Ricky played the game, played the the people's person, the people's champion. And, and that that really connected with the United States. And what helped, of course, as well, was that everybody loved to hate Mayweather. So you, you had the perfect fight poster, you know, the, the, the good against the bad, the hero against the villain. Yeah, it was almost like a perfect storm of polar opposites. And, you know, it, 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 even, even the... Um, the fact that he'd signed that three-fight deal after the Mauser win, he'd gone with Banner Promotions, which is Artie Palulu and Hobson. And, you know, they weren't big promoters, let's say. But when, after the Castillo fight, then he'd done, he signed with Golden Boy for the, the Mayweather fight. And that, at, at that time, Golden Boy were head and shoulders. They, even though top rank, you could say, over time had been the biggest one. But at that time, 2010, Golden Boy had really gone to another level with HBO, that great relationship where I can't remember who was head of HBO Sports at the time, but they were kind of really running the show and they were doing these massive events. They were bringing in all the proper PR people and they, you know, they did these press, these press tours, like, you know, five cities in five days and they just smashed it out of the park. They really did. And, you know, HBO, the 24-7, they, I mean, they, they spent millions on those shows and it, it, it really really, really captured uh, everyone's imagination. Like you say, it was almost like a perfect storm. And I remember the, the press conference in London, Matt, was at the O2 Arena. It was in the theatre within the, the complex, but it was a massive turnout. And that was the first indication to anybody who wasn't already aware that, that this was going to be massive, the, the media turnout. But just the, the whole feeling of, of how big this was becoming at that time. And this was in September for a fight that was in December. So you had this ratcheting up almost day by day by day. And I spoke to Richard Schaefer, who was massive within Golden Boy at the time. And he said, by the time we get to December, every soul breathing in the UK and in the USA will know this fight's happening. They might not buy it, but believe me, with what we do with these two fellas, they'll know it's happening. 
and it was it was magnificent promotion built on as i was saying that what what Hatton himself had done on two previous visits to Vegas earlier in that that year yeah and mike it not, i'm just trying to i'm actually you know it's coming back to me now even when we're talking i remember they i think they flew from london or manchester over flew to new york they did the presser in new york then i think they flew to la did the presser in la maybe did vegas as well then landed back in London. And then the day after London, it was Manchester. I mean, this is like in five days. You know, you literally do five cities, five days. And I remember Ricky Hatton at the Manchester press conference. Ricky's got a fantastic sense of humour. He is very funny, very witty. <laughs> <laughs> and if it had just been down to the slagging match, Ricky, Ricky would have won a unanimous decision and it would have been a shutout. He absolutely destroyed Floyd when it comes to the, the slagging and the banter. But, you know, obviously the fight ended up being different. But, you know, I was talking to Billy Graham at that London press conference and, and he'd been on these private jets flying all over the place, as you say in that. And, and Billy said to me um, that Floyd Mayweather had been really amenable, really convivial. You know, they sat at the back of this jet having a chat. And he said after one of these chats, he got up to get off the plane and, and they had a hug. And he said to me, he's tiny, he's tiny. He's absolutely tight. He's not a welterweight. He's not a welterweight. And, and I think that was, that was um, in the thinking. I mean, you, you were in the camp, Matt, but it, it, what's really interesting, and I know we're, we're fascinated, Matt, by, by perceptions during fight week and how they can change. And I was working that week in fight week with Richie Woodall, and, and he arrived on the Monday. I got there on the Sunday to, to do some preview work, and he arrived on the Monday, and we were walking through the casino in the MGM Grand, and, and Ricky and a a couple of others, you might have been there, Matt, came through and, and Richie and Ricky had a big hug. And as we walked away, Ricky said, uh, Richie Woodall said to me, he's a tiny welterweight. And, and, and I laughed about that. So I, I, I had Billy Graham on the one hand saying that Mayweather was tiny. Now I had Richie Woodall on the other hand saying that Hatton was tiny. So you had all these, all these different opinions being thrown up into the air during fight week. And that's, that's a fascinating part of of, of stories like this. I mean, you know, Billy Graham and, and Richie Woodall are, are, are so educated and they have such a tutored eye, but this was the kind of fight where everyone had an opinion. Everyone had an opinion, whether they were schooled in the sport or not. I, I remember, and it's, it kind of touches a bit on what Andy said, as in like, when you're so close to something, sometimes it's difficult to see, have an objective or a subjective view. And, and obviously, Ricky, we were good pals with, you know, it was only me, Ricky and Matthew at the time with Billy Graham and, I remember speaking to you afterwards and you said to me how you were amazed that some really good, experienced guys from the UK got totally swept on fight week with the hype and the patriotism. You know, and they went with Ricky and they picked Ricky and they paid for different things. And you said, I remember you saying to me, I never, I make my mind up when a fight is made, whether it's that eight weeks or 10 weeks, whatever. When it's, as soon as the fight is made and announced, I make my mind up. Because what happens fight week is all that sort of stuff can get can change your mind. We're all human. We get persuaded. We get talking with the backstories and, you know, the late money and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I've always kept that with me as I've gone on. Even now, when, when a fight's made, I make up my mind what I think is going to happen. I don't wait till fight week because fight week, you could change your mind five times a day. <laughs> Because in, in, in the media centre or wandering around the hotel, especially in Vegas, where you bump into fight people every 10 metres or whatever, and, and you can listen to very learned opinions and, and you get swayed by them. But it, it was really interesting that week. I think it was, it was the, 
the best example that I, I use of, of how you can be swayed by others' opinions. And, and sometimes, you know, those opinions turn out to be much better than yours. But there's, um, I've got a copy of the Las Vegas Review Journal from the day of the fight. I mean, I've, I've got notes like six inches thick from, from this fight. It's such a special event in my career. And there were, I think there were 31 boxing writers polled. 24 went for Mayweather and seven went for Hatton. And all seven of those are British. And I know Ron Lewis, for a fact, still talks to this day about how he regrets making his call. He said he arrived in Las Vegas the previous weekend absolutely convinced that Mayweather was going to win the fight. And in his preview in the Times, he wrote that Hatton was going to win by decision. He was one of those who'd been swayed. It's very easily done across a fight week like that. This kind of theory, perception grew and grew and grew that Hatton was naturally the bigger man and that his work to the body, with the vivid memory of what he did to Jose Luis Castillo in their minds, people were thinking that the body attack would break Mayweather down eventually. That that was the general the general basis of that opinion that was that was growing day by day behind behind May, uh, behind Ricky Hatton. So but from a, from a distance, Andy, I'm just interested as to why, what what was it about Hatton? Because we were so close in our different ways. What what was it about Hatton that that drew you that made you made you go to a mate's house at four o'clock in the morning? Because they got stunning pay per view figures for a fight that was four and five in the morning. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids! Hey, everybody! Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! I think what it was with him was it people have talked about this a lot about the the kind of boy next door kid off the estate kind of quality that he had and 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 it was that it it's repeated so often it sounds like a cliche but in sport relatability is a really important thing isn't it because if you feel like you can relate to the person who's getting in the ring none of us really can if we're pure observers like me who's never done anything like it but if you feel like if you meet them and you feel like you already know them, and we've probably all made that mistake earlier in our careers with, with with certain people, then you know that that person has got something about them. And I think that's what it was with Hatton. And I'd kind of watched his career grow. I remember seeing a box on the same bill as Matt, actually, um, at the conference centre in Wembley a few years previously. A, a colleague of mine at TalkSport, who was a Mancunian, had, had said, you know, we should definitely go and, and, and watch this fight. And it only lasted a couple of rounds against Justin Rosal, but it was just the way he boxed. I think that was another thing that that really drew people to him. And I think the press tour did play did play a big part because I've just got it written down here. Los Angeles, then Grand Rapids, which is Mayweather territory, then New York, then London, then Manchester. And he came across great in the press tour. He came across as what he is, as a man with some humour. Um, 
who was down to earth and Mayweather came across as kind of the opposite, basically, because at that point, was he money Mayweather by then or was he still pretty boy? I can't yeah, quite... Or, he, or was, he just made that jump to money Mayweather. He'd, he'd fought and, 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 you know, Golden Boy would just start to do these extravaganza events and uh, the 24-7. I think the only one before this was the De La Hoya Mayweather fight and then this, then he retired. And then this was the fight that got him out of retirement after Ricky, you know, goaded him to Max Kellerman. So, it, um, yeah, it, it was just, it just had the perfect dynamics for what ended up being just an unbelievable, unbelievable event. Like you say, you know, the fight in the end, you know, Ricky giving his all, but, you know, he wasn't good enough. And, and, and that's no shame because Mayweather, I remember that night being in the corner just thinking, because I remember, I know, I remember Mike was a big Mayweather fan, and he was really big on Mayweather. And now looking back, I, I, I could see why Mike, you know, had it spot on. You know what I mean? But because Ricky was my pal, and even though you're trying to be not biased, it, it's impossible sometimes. And you know, but when I look back, he, he, he um, May, um, that night I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, he really is that good." Because let me tell you, Ricky Hatton was a lot better than a lot of people thought he was. You know, he was he was clever. He was crafty. He was a good... He weren't just a slugger. He wasn't just physically strong. He had great feet. He had great anticipation. He was smart. Do you know what I mean? He really was. And a lot of fighters that fought Ricky underestimated that in him. And I, having sparred so many rounds and being around him close, knew how good he was. And to see Mayweather dismantle him and beat him the way he did, I remember just thinking, wow, he really is that good. Well, I think what we... Mayweather showed on the night, sorry, Andy, what Mayweather showed on the night as well, you know, you talk there about Ricky, you know, being really clever, really smart, terrific reflexes. And on the flip side, what Mayweather was never really known for, Matt, was how hard he can be and how dirty he can be. And, and on that night, he proved that he can, he can do whatever he needs to do. If it gets filthy and dirty, then he can do that and he'll go as far as... Joe Cortez or whoever it might be will allow him to go. But you talk there, Matt, about me being so keen on, on Mayweather. You know, I'd watched him, like all of us, from afar for a long time and love what he did. I first saw him from a broadcaster's point of view at the Olympic Games in, in 1996 in Atlanta when the American team had a team press conference and all of the boxers were lined up alongside each other. And, and Mayweather was towards the end. And he was just leaning on his on his hand with his elbow on the table, yawning virtually all the way through. And I was there with Steve Bunce and we we looked in the American team guide and said, who's this? Who's this little kid on the end? He looks like he's completely uninterested. And it, and it was Floyd Mayweather. And I, you know, I, I watched him a couple of times at the Olympic Games and, and, and loved his style there without ever pretending to forecast that he was going to go and do what he did, but I had watched his professional career and was really impressed by him. But earlier that year, when he beat De La Hoya in, in, in that year, 2007, that's when I really started to understand how special he was because he hadn't quite become the superstar. That fight and then the Hatton fight were what really began that transition of, of Floyd Mayweather turning from brilliant world champion into boxing superstar. And he did it pretty much on the back of De La Hoya's popularity and Ricky Hatton's popularity by, by playing the heel, by happily being the man that everybody wanted to lose. And I watched him closely during the build-up when you could actually get reasonably close to Mayweather. I got a one-on-one -on -one for about 10 minutes with him. 
in his gym. We went to the public workout that that now is is pretty much a cosmetic exercise for any big fight. But back then, he went through a proper training session, and it was just fascinating to watch. It was my first time seeing that the pad work that he does with with Roger Mayweather, and there were a couple of journalists there who said, "Oh, what a waste of time that is. He's not going to use that in the ring." And I said, you know, that Sebastian Coe didn't only ever run 800 metres in training. There are all sorts of elements in training that, that build towards making, making the champion. And then to watch what he did on the night against a much bigger man. And this was something I said to, to Billy Graham at that press conference where he said to me that, you know, I've hugged Mayweather on the Jets and, and, and he's tiny. And I said, but he's been a welterweight for two years. He's acclimatised. He fought Zab Judah, Carlos Baldemir. And and he was he was acclimatized in that heavier poundage. And in fact, he fought De La Hoya at light middle. Um and and you know, took some shots from from De La Hoya, but to me ran out a comfortable winner. I was really surprised when that turned into a split decision. But watching him around that week, um, and look, I could bang on and on and on about the experiences, but I do remember at the the weigh-in on the Friday of the De La Hoya fight, which is where it was the first time I had seen this event where the weigh-ins an event they opened up a third of the MGM Grand Garden Arena 7,000 people turned up and probably all but five of them were Hispanic going mad for De La Hoya and on the stage Mayweather stepped off the scales and he just very slightly miscued in putting his foot into a pair of gym shorts a pair of baggy gym shorts and I just thought here's here's probably the most fluent loose agile boxer that I know, and he's actually missed his footing. Only, only just slightly clipped the top of the shorts as he was putting them back on. And I thought, having gone for Mayweather heavily all week, he was he was really showing the signs of how big this was, how popular De La Hoya was, and he'd suddenly realised this was so uh, much bigger than anything. And I thought this was nerves. And I thought, you know, I've, I've picked the wrong man here. Um, and yet he turns up, whatever it was, 36 hours later and produced the most brilliant performance. And so when he looked equally nervous on the scales against Ricky Hatton, I took that as a bad sign for Hatton because, to me, the more nervous Mayweather looked, he used that and then he got his head around the situation and by fight time was using that nervous tension. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. And I, you know, I, I'm like you, Mike. I, I actually thought Mayweather was a clear winner against the La Jolla. Not easy, not a landslide. De La Hoya was like, you know, competitive, but I think it was definitely maybe 116, 112, def definitely 115, 113, but a clear 115, 113. I was amazed at the judge that went De La Hoya's way. But going back to what you said about, um, not going to backtrack too much, but I think I feel like I've got to say this bit. When you said about, I said about Ricky Hatton proving he was smarter and quicker than people thought, and you mentioned about, Floyd proved how tough, how hard, how rough, and how dirty he could be. Floyd actually outbody punched Ricky Hatton in that fight. And I remember, so there was a, do you remember Brother, Brother Nazim, who used to train uh, from Philadelphia, who trained Bernard Hopkins for a few fights? Yeah. And he had his son, well, I think Bear Allen, Rock Allen, and I think the Dargans were some way related as well, Carl Dargan. Two, I think it was Carl Dargan and maybe Rock Allen came over and sparred with Ricky Hatton in Manchester for a few weeks. And when we went to Las Vegas and we were training out at a UFC gym a few blocks down for, off the strip, they were using them again. And one of the day, I think it was a media workout had come down and they interviewed Brother Nazim. And they said, um, 
one of the guys asked him, you know, what, you know, seriously, how how do you see the fight? This was actually when the cameras had gone there. So this was off the record. So this was definitely his honest opinion. And I was just stood right there and he said, uh, he said, listen, let me tell you, if this fight was at 140, this would be a close fight. He said, but 147, he said, I'll tell you one thing. He goes, if Floyd underestimates Ricky's speed and ring savvy, you know, he could be in trouble. But also let me tell you, if Ricky Hatton underestimates Floyd's toughness and ability to fight on the inside, then he's going to come mistaken. Floyd Mayweather didn't get this far without being roughed up along the way. You know, and he kind of had it spot on, didn't he? Ricky tried to rough him up and be the physically more stronger man. But actually, Floyd was dirtier. He'd stick the forearm in, he'd hit him in the body. And in the end, he was he outfought Ricky Hatton on the inside. Of course, Joe Cortez was at a shocker, but... Ultimately, you know, Floyd, Floyd, Floyd's tough and Floyd was hard as nails and he could fight like fuck on the inside. And I never knew he could do that. I was shocked. Did he, Ricky spar with um, Daniel Jacobs as well, Matt? Do you no, not that? for that fight. It was Rock Allen time. and I think Carl Dargan. As Daniel Jacobs made his, made his debut on the, on the undercard. And Danny right. Garcia had his second fight, I think. So it was, it was, we weren't to know then, of course, but it was, you know, it was uh, it was a decent, a decent undercard. But I came away from the uh, the Mayweather De La Hoya fight, Matt and, and Andy, talking about, you know, Mayweather being the most special fighter I'd seen live at ringside. You know, I, I still actually put Sugar Ray Leonard ahead of him, but but watching him from such a close up position was just a joy. And when it came round to to Ricky Hatton. And I, I was asked once on, on Five Live by Mark Pugach, what, what separates these two? And I said, in simple terms, if you're speaking to a general sports audience who are not going to understand the ins and outs of boxing, at the time, the Irish golfer, Porrick Harrington, was, was winning big tournaments. I can't remember exactly which ones, but, but the, the major tournaments. And I said that Ricky Hatton, to me, is like Porrick Harrington. He can win at the highest level. But Floyd Mayweather is like Tiger Woods. He's legendary and will be remembered as one of the all-time greats. And that was how I tried to, to give that kind of general opinion as to, as to how special I felt that, that Mayweather was. But on the basis of seeing him live earlier in the year against, against De La Hoya and how he coped with the whole, the whole situation. I think that, that's a... That's a- that's a great comparison. That's a great comparison. It illustrates the the difference between the two of them, I think, in a very kind of fair and accurate way. So just to go back to your experience of it, Matt, in the, in the build-up, um, what's it like being around a fight like that, so close to it, so close to the person who's actually going to have to walk up those steps and, and slide through those ropes? Because... It's one of those fights. I find sometimes with really, really big fights or any kind of massive occasion, the build-up is can be amazing, which it was for that fight. And then when you get to the point where it's actually happening, it's almost a bit surreal. It just seems to be this thing that's so big that it's never actually going to happen, if that makes any sense at all. How did the temperature change in that house day by day as you got nearer? So, I mean... The last few days, I moved down to the hotel room in, in uh, the MGM. So, you know, I let, let Ricky do his own thing the last few days with, with brother Matthew and, and Paul Speak, uh, his, his agent. So, but certainly 
the build-up was, you know, there was a good team there. There was great fun. You know, there was a lot of people coming in. And, and there was a real confidence, I felt, anyway, within within the team, within Ricky himself, that he, he could pull this off. Um, definitely in the changing rooms an hour before, I felt the atmosphere changed. Not that it, not that he wasn't didn't believe he could win, but but it just seemed different. Like it was like, oh, we're here now. This is real. This and I, I, the atmosphere, like I say, the cost of Sioux fight at the time was massive, but this was just on a whole another level. And I mean, I remember when we were walking out to the ring. I'm I'm only handing up in the corner, and my legs were like jelly. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe. I can't even explain it. It was like literally. I'm walking to you know he's my mate, isn't he? You know what I mean? And, and it's almost like the realization of the magnitude of the event, which also then sub- subconsciously you realize how big Floyd Mayweather is and how good he is. It, it just all became so real so quickly, and it was like I remember, like I say, I, I was walking to the ring. I'm not fighting, but my legs were like jelly. It's interesting that what you're saying there about, you know, and Andy, you asked about the the atmosphere across fight week and how it might change day by day. I interviewed Mayweather's cut man and, and the man who, who wraps his hands, Rafael Garcia, no longer with us. And, and this was on the Wednesday of fight week. We were in the media center waiting for the press conference to start at around midday or whatever. And I did an interview, recorded an interview with Rafael and he told me that last night, so this is like 10 hours ago, they all got a call at 2 a.m. from Floyd Mayweather who fancied a session in the gym and so they all had to get up and follow him down to the gym. This is in fight week, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning in fight week at 2 a.m. and Floyd Mayweather just summoned the troops and and told them that they had to get down to the gym to, to work out. And it's just another example of, of a man who, who just did what he did by feel. You know, you can describe, you know, what Vasyl Lomachenko does as, as, as a scientific approach and what his father does. And it is, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by all that. And they talk about Lomachenko would download data in the early rounds and then use it to his advantage in later rounds. Well, Mayweather and, and Roger Mayweather, his uncle, did that in a, in, a, in a very different way, but just as effectively. And if you look at, you look at the fight, look at the early stages of the, the fight, and I, you know, I, I watch, it's such a, a memorable episode in my career. I, I watch it regularly. And if you, you look at even the first round, within, it's certainly within the first minute, Mayweather tries that, what he calls the check left, left hook, at least three times. And that's the shot that, in the end, was the beginning of the end and, and pretty much was the shot that finished the fight. But he's trying that in, in, in the first minute as if they've worked on that during the build-up. They've identified that that's, that's a key component of Mayweather's and he's trying it in the first, not necessarily with Hatton coming at him, but he's, but he's trying it. He's trying it time and again in, in, in the first round of the contest. And, and that made me think about, you know, we, we kind of lavish praise on, Papachenko and, and Vasil Lomachenko about their, their ability to, to download this data. And, and Mayweather did that, but, but just in a, in a kind of a, a more natural, almost unschooled way of doing it. You know? mm-hmm. 
Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah, I mean, you see, the first round, even the first couple Mayweather, you could see he's just having a look. You know, Ricky was doing well, and Ricky's clever, and he's faint, and he's not as easy to hit as you think. And, and you know, definitely Floyd missed a couple, and Ricky was doing okay. But you could see Mayweather was just trying to time him. He was just trying to get that read of him. And I remember I remember speaking to... So I, that was in the December. The following March, I trained with Buddy McGirt for the fight against Jury Boy Campus. I went out there in the February or the end of January. And um, I remember saying to Buddy, because... Buddy McGirt was one of the very few people in America that picked Ricky Hatton to beat Costa Sue. Or, you know, I don't know. He said he's definitely going to beat him, but he said, he said, he, he said, he, he said, Ricky Hatton's got to make sure he's either way out or way in. He can't get caught in that mid distance on the way in against Costa Sue. But I think he's got to, you know, if he can get close, I think he's got a great, you know, he really gave him a good chance where a lot of Americans were writing Ricky Hatton off against Costa Sue. But against Floyd, when he was predicting it, he didn't give Ricky a chance at all, which so I thought, Ooh, that, I found it a bit. I don't know. I just thought, God, he, he obviously knew. He obviously sees what Ricky's good at doing, but he just completely written him off. He obviously really rates Mayweather. So anyway, I said to Buddy, Buddy, how come you like? What was it that you saw that you just knew? You didn't give Ricky a hat and a chance against uh, Costa Sue against Floyd, but you did against Costa Sue. And he said to me, I just knew we had the style for Costa Sue. You know, Costa Sue was thirty-seven years old at the time, and Ricky was young and fresh. And I knew he'd just get close. I knew he'd be able to nullify him and take him into that type of fight. But I also knew that Floyd would just time him. He'd have a look at him. He'd keep him at bay. And he'd just get the time of him. And once he gets the time of him, it's over. So I'm very, I'm very curious, Mike, to, to ask you about how the experience was as a, as a broadcaster when you're right at the sharp end of it. Because the... The ring walks in America are different to how they are in the UK and they're not as good, I, I generally tend to find. But this time there was, it was just kind of a bit different watching it. You, you see the people at ringside, it kind of harked back to some days gone by where Hollywood stars were just regulars at ringside. You had the likes of Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis, uh, Stallone, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Wesley Snipes, David Beckham was there. Tom Jones was singing the national anthem. The American anthem got got booed. Uh, and it's a set, as I was saying to Matt there, when something's that big, it almost feels like it's too big to actually happen. And, and for you, it's kind of the same, I'd imagine, because I've not done a fight that big, but you would be obsessing about it to the nth degree in the build-up, and you said you had six inches of notes there, and then all of a sudden, they're in the holding area, and it's go time. I mean, how were you, how was it for you? Well, I've said a couple of times already that, you know, this this was one of the most memorable experiences of, of my career. It was also, I have to say, one of the most daunting, and I'll even use the word frightening. And I boxed at a very, very low level as a, as a kid. Um, but, I boxed often enough to to get nervous, to move to a degree where you knew who your opponent was, you knew a bit about their record, there was a bit of a reputation locally. Um, and my, my day at school would be completely affected by what was coming that evening, wherever I was boxing. And it took 
a number of fights and maybe 20, 25 bouts, as I prefer to call them, but 20, 25 bouts before I, I started to understand that actually the more nervous I was, the better I performed in the ring, even down at that, that low level. But I, I still got very nervous. And it's just so strange that all those years later that that, that control of nerves became really important because, as I was saying to you, I was getting texts and good luck messages from people that you just don't hear about because this was so massive. And it was the biggest fight I'd done. I became boxing correspondent for Five Live end of 2005, beginning of 2006. So I'm a couple of years into it. And this would have been the first mon monumental test. I'd mentioned earlier that Kawasaki fought and, and David Hay fought. But this just felt like something completely different, as, as Matt was saying. Um, and so, you know, in the afternoon of, of, of the fight in the hotel, I just got that kind of that, that feeling in, in, in the pit of the stomach. Um, and, and without that experience as a kid, you know, that, that might have affected me in a different way. But I'd learned to embrace it. And, and I just thought, this is, this is great. And, and I also thought at that time, I can't remember how old I was, but I thought, how many people in the world are doing a job at this age that makes them nervous. That's, that's got to be a special job. To, if, if you're still, you know, getting that pent up and, and, and also it's a mixture of nervous tension and excitement. I just, I couldn't wait to get ringside when you'd been around the hotel all week. And I'd gone, I'd, I'd done the breakfast show that previous night. So the breakfast show starts at six, which is 10 PM on the Friday night leading into the Saturday and I'd made my way around to the media center and there's, I always chuckle at this and I, I was making my way around and the casino was absolutely rammed with all these Brits and there was a guy who was just in front of me who was making his way and he had a, a single bottle of beer in his hand and he was swaying from one side to the other and you've been on that that studio walk that leads from the casino to the media center in Vegas it's about 20 meters wide I swear, he hit both walls but managed to stay standing. And then when I came out, I'd done my various pieces on, on the various networks for breakfast time on a Saturday morning. I came back out and he was sat down asleep. And I just thought that's, that's the end of his night. But then when I looked more closely, he'd actually made his way to the queue for the weigh-in. And that was how big, again, it was another, and I, I wished I'd had that line for my previews to, to illustrate just how big this was, that people had started queuing overnight for the weigh-in. And what I came to realise over time was that thousands, and I mean thousands of these fans had turned up without tickets, but they had come just to be part of the whole event, the whole week, and to go in free of charge to the weigh-in was, was for them a massive, massive bonus. And, of course, by the time I turned up, at seven or eight the next morning to, to start doing the, the afternoon previews on, on Five Live, that the queue was snaking back to the casino. And this was just for the weigh-in. Again, just another one of those many ways of, of underlining how, how massive this was. And so that, you know, I, I do remember being, being very nervous but very daunted. But um, also once it gets underway and you start looking around at the crowd, which is why, I don't know about you, you guys at the moment, I'm finding it really difficult. I've only done one one night of commentary during lockdown and, and during this whole pandemic, but um, it's it's just, I mean, and I guess so, especially on radio, and that's not to say it's harder or easier than television, but on radio, you've got two components. You've got words and noise, and if one of them's taken away from you, then then it's a, it's a, it's a hollow sound. 
Um, and that night was just manic, you know, with, with everyone, everyone who could sing was singing. And, and it was just the, the most amazing atmosphere. And it was, it was very easy to get, to get swept up in that. And then when the, when the fight started, there was just, just that, that flicker of doubt in my mind. And again, you, you would have had it about, it. I, I was, I had Mayweather comfortably in front all the time, but I'm, you know, they've just, I'm thinking you know, subconsciously, this is yeah. so big. Everyone's going to remember this. If I get this one wrong, you know, this will stay with me for the rest of my career. And I'm, you know, I've got Hatton six one up. I've got him seven one up or whatever. And I'm thinking like, if, if he ain't, and, and this is this, like you said, Matt, pre-social media. So you're not, you know, now and again, now we, we will say that social media has got Hatton in front or social media has got Mayweather in front. Um, because there were a lot of untidy skirmishes. I mean, there, there are, as you moved on, that like from the eighth round onwards, it, it was it was comfortably Mayweather. But I was just, I was just thinking, like, I'm so in love with Mayweather here. Am I, am I being completely ridiculously biased by by what I'm seeing? So that you know, you get all of those kind of those doubts flooding your thoughts. But it was uh, it was monumental. It was just one of the one of the great great occasions I've uh, I've ever been involved in. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm just reliving it as you're talking. I can feel the excitement, <laughs> but it was it wasn't just the fight. It wasn't just the night of the fight. It, it was literally been the whole week. Like you say, even the British press had, press had come out for the whole week. Then literally, because it was that big of a story. I imagine that back home, you know, people was journos were sending stories back every single day, building up to the fight. I'd never been, I'd never seen anything like that at that time. I mean, I'd imagine, I think if the Anthony Joshua Ruiz rematch had been in New York or Las Vegas, maybe it would have felt that big. Because I think in terms of the scene, it was a rematch, British heavyweight, it was a British heavyweight champion who last was going back into the immediate rematch. A lot of people said he shouldn't, all this sort of thing. I think, but because we were in Saudi Arabia, we didn't really get that feel of, you know, the big fight builder, but, Obviously, being in Vegas for the Hatton Mayweather, ah, I just remember being, I just remember everyone getting swept. It was just like, it was unbelievable. Like, I don't think I could explain it because you had to, I think it was one of those things, you had to be there to really know it. Yeah. I got a call. I arrived on the Sunday um, and actually interviewed Ricky on the Sunday night in a, in a Starbucks in the MGM Grand and, and thought he was, he was really composed and, and, I was really impressed with how he basically behaved and his his general demeanor ahead of ahead of fight week. And it was it was just another fascinating element of it to to follow the progress during the week. And when they got to the press conference on the on the Wednesday, I'm pretty sure it was, when they got up for the for the stare down, Ricky did the the slit throat gesture as they as they kind of stepped away. And that seemed to me something that was so out of character. Going back to what I said about his his gesture at the Juan Urango press conference earlier in the year, and I just it 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 seemed out of character with with Ricky's general behaviour, and and I, I, that again just just sowed a a seed of doubt. But it 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 was just such a such a, a massive massive event, and and I think it. It was greatly helped, Matt, by by Vegas. You, you talk there about Ruiz and, and Joshua. What was missing was the fan element. You know, as you walked away, I, I don't think. Well, apart from at the weigh-in, I don't think I spoke to or met a fan in Saudi Arabia. 
to, to talk, you know, to get that to get that buzz of the fight. You can't avoid it. In in fact, you know, if if like you, if you're an ex-boxer and you don't want to talk about the fight, then you're going to have to get a disguise in, in the MGM Grand. If you want to walk through that casino just to go and get a bite to eat and be un, and just be unfettered for that, you know, that that one half an hour spell or whatever, then you you're going to have to put your dark glasses and your hood up because you'll get stopped, you know, every step of the way. And I had that, you know, being alongside the likes of Richie Woodall or whoever. But that was the big element, the fan element was what was missing from from the Joshua Ruiz rematch. And I completely agree with you um, in, in Vegas. E- even in New York, Matt, sometimes, it, you know, that you leave the arena after the weigh-in or the press conference or wherever, and then you all go your separate ways to your different hotels. The fans go to their hotels and the apartments. But in Vegas, it's just <laughs> everything's there, right there in the hotel. So you you can't avoid it. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. So you were you were talking like about how you were seeing the fight going and you were confident enough or as confident as you could ever be that, that it was going Mayweather's way and I empathize completely with what you were saying there about hoping that you're seeing it right, because that's, I think that's the, that's our greatest fear, all of us, isn't it? That we have a night where we end up apparently having watched something different to, to everybody else, to the consensus. So in the corner, Matt, at what point did you realize, do you think you desperately want your friend to win, but at what point do you think, did you realize after how many rounds did you think to yourself, this isn't happening? This just isn't happening. I, I knew in the fourth because he nearly got stopped in the fourth. He got but he got hurt bad in the fourth. He got busted up. You know, he, I think if Mayweather had turned the screw there and then, maybe he could have got him out of there. He, he had him badly hurt anyway. Um, but Ricky was tough and he knew how to survive the moment. And he did survive the moment. And then I remember thinking, God, this fifth's going to be torrid. And it wasn't. It was almost like he had a go, Mayweather, in the fourth. He's back off. Won the round, but didn't go for it. Then I had to go again in the sixth, hurt him again. Then again, the seventh, I thought, right, that's it now. He's back off. Hurt him again in the eighth. I thought, right, he's definitely going to turn the screw now. He didn't. He's back off. And then in the tenth, he got him. So it was like, he's so calculated, Mayweather. It's on most people that would have had Ricky Hatton as hurt as he did in the fourth, would have gone for it again in the fifth. He didn't. He just, it was almost like, I don't know, he's just like a... Like he's, got, he's like a mathematician. He's just his calculations are going on in his head, and he's just timing it. And he's just—he's so calculated. He's so meticulous, but he's careful. And that's why some people don't like him. Maybe Sugar Ray Leonard would have took the chance and and gone for it in the fifth round, where Mayweather won't take those chances. He'll just be more patient. He's so patient, and he just thought, no, nah, not yet. Soften him up more. All right, I'll have another go. Oh, not yet. He's back up. You know. He, 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 you know, he, he, he's just, um, 
I remember, I remember being gutted for Ricky afterwards, even though, listen, they were both undefeated and, you know, he was the underdog going in. I, I, I was really gutted for him because I know he was, he had to put a brave face on, do you know what I mean? All those fans had come out. There was the after-fight party thing. Of course, he had to turn up and shake the hands and that, but I know he was wounded, do you know what I mean? But he still had to play the game. And I, I remember feeling sorry for him, do you know what I mean? And, and uh because, you know, no matter what, he was an undefeated fighter. He hadn't lost in how many years to taste that defeat and to get knocked out and stopped. And I know his pride was hurt. And, you know, I, I, I didn't, so I'd had a good drink the night before the fight, probably the two nights before that. <laughs> in fact, to be honest with you, I won't tell the stories on this pod, but I've got, I got some very, <laughs> I've got some fantastic stories that I could tell <laughs> off the record. But that night, I, I didn't have a drink or nothing. I was just like, I don't know. It, it was a weird feeling, do you know what I mean? To have been part of something so big, to have been in the corner. But ultimately then, obviously, it just feels so flat. I, I was exhausted. I was shattered. I don't know. That was because of the, the anticipation, the nerves. Probably hadn't eaten for several hours. Maybe probably a bit delayed, hungover. Not before, whatever. Probably a combination. But I remember like being absolutely shattered but wide awake. And you get that a bit in Vegas anyway to pump all the oxygen in and whatever. But yeah, I remember leaving the after fight party with Lee Beard. He'd been a part of the camp as well. And went for something to eat with a couple of the Golden Boy people. And it was like, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning. But yeah, it, it, it was the maddest experience ever at that time anyway. I've had, you know, plenty of good ones and, and, and different ones since then. But uh, it was definitely, uh, I think, a special time in, in British boxing and certainly in, in my boxing career, even though it wasn't my fight, but being a part of it all. And I, I definitely took a lot from that, the experience that I learned how to approach the big fights, you know, it, you know, because as Mike said there, Ricky Hatton did take a lot of things in his stride. You know, he was very composed. He never let the, the occasion get to him. Maybe there was a bit of nerves there the last couple of days, but why wouldn't there be? You're fighting for Mayweather. The event was huge. I mean, there was how many thousands of people were in the way? It was unbelievable. Joe Kalzaghi, Enzo, they'd just come in. It, it was mental. I think that was the way where Bernard Hopkins and Kalzaghi got in each other's face, and that probably set up that fight. Yeah, and they fought in April of the, the following year, didn't they? That was the on the, the day of the weigh-in back at the media centre. That was the infamous comment from Bernard Hopkins when he said, I'm not going to lose to a white man. And so it it triggered the, the build-up to that fight that happened in April. But you talk about the madness of post-fight, Matt. The following day, I don't know if you remember this, but it was Sports Personality of the Year, and Ricky had been nominated. And this was just the, kind of the end for me to, to, you know, just this amazing trip. And I've, I've got so much respect for Ricky for turning up because, as you say, I mean, you, you, you were close to him and saw how wounded he was. We, we saw that from a more detached vantage point on that morning. And it wasn't easy to get him there. And the show started at 11 a.m. because it started at 7 p.m. in the UK. And the BBC had sent a, a small production team over to set up a kind of a mini studio type scene in the, in the arena, on the arena floor. The ring was still up behind us. The stools were still in the corner. And so there were significant chunks of the show that came from Las Vegas. And there were interviews with Ricky, interviews with Joe Kawasaki. Joe Kawasaki was voted Sports Personality of the Year and, and Ricky got third place. But it was, it, it was just, um, 
it, it was difficult to to look at Ricky uh, that that Sunday morning, um, and and I know from you know Steve Bunce was was basically tasked with getting him out of bed and talking to to Carol his mum and and shepherded him down back to the arena. It it wasn't easy, but he did it. He, he still fulfilled professional commitments, even though he had no duty to turn up. You know, wasn't was being paid. There was nothing in the contract, but he again just being the people's champ he turned up and you know knew what size of an audience it was and and again joe kazaki winning ricky happened third it just underlines how big boxing was back then and we're only talking 2007 i remember watching that i remember watching sports personality of the year the next day and just being yes just very impressed that that he was there because I'd I'll tell you what you'd have laughed at, chaps. Is <laughs> I won't drop any names, but the people shuffling chairs to make sure they got on the camera shot. They, they were at 20 seats to make it look like it was quite packed. And there were people shifting across, checking their camera angle, moving and I see. <laughs> oh, God. Egos, egos abandoned, oh, mate, to make, make oh, sure listen. they got, they got oh, on the BBC. Oh, There's 10 million going to be watching this. <laughs> Let me tell you that that whole that whole hat and may with a build up fight week. Then I had a fight. I seen a different meaning of the word ego on certain people. Let me tell you. I can imagine. I, I can imagine. Just um, just to pick up on something you you mentioned there, Mike, because this is something that that I always find interesting because I don't really have to do it. Um, I just tend to commentate on the fights. I don't really have to do post-fight interviews. Every now and again, I might do it when um, when Andy's otherwise engaged, Andy Scott. But talking to a fighter after they've lost, particularly in a really big fight, you'll have to do it in the ring if you can get ring access, which you almost always can. Then you'll probably have to do it again the next day. Talking to a fighter who's been beaten, it's not that easy, is it? Because they are generally very accommodating and and understanding of the fact that you've got a job to do but you really do feel like you're intruding upon this very private personal grief I, I, I don't want to kind of overblow it but it always reminds me slightly of when you're watching the tv and there's a couple of police officers have to go and knock on somebody's door and deliver terrible news about a relative of theirs that's died or something like that and I'm not trying to make light of anything here but it's I don't envy you that job is basically what I'm saying it's a it's a ticklish one to say the least yeah I, I think that's high among the most difficult jobs that we do especially if you've built some kind of rapport with the boxers and again because of the nature of the business that we're in over time you tend to do that you don't get on with every boxer but that that's a really difficult situation sometimes what makes it harder is the the ignorance on the outside and you'll be asked why didn't you ask such and such a question why didn't you push him on this and I say that look this is a very different situation this isn't a goalkeeper who's let the ball slide through his legs this is a guy who's been pounded around the head and has to be given some kind of leeway for that there might be a time to ask that question Maybe even that that interview the next day, but but you you have to judge it according to to what you see and what you hear in front of you, and also bearing in mind what you might have been given before. And in most cases, 
these boxers have given you so much of their time. And you might say, well, they need to. They need to promote themselves. There's no calendar in boxing, so they have to, through the media, let everybody know when their fights are happening and, and to build the event and to increase the pay-per-view sales, whatever. But still, they, in many cases, go way beyond that and invite you into their homes, invite you into their gyms. And all, all of that, you know, that, that adds to that, that sense of respect that you have. And, and, and yes, in, at times, it, it, it puts a barrier in front of you as to, as to where you're prepared to go in that post-fight situation. But it very much depends on the result. Because if Hatton had won that night, having taken that same amount of punishment, those bruises would have been softened by winning. So you can ask a different set of questions. But when he's lost and has also been pounded, then that's a very, a very different interview to, to the interview in any other sport because of the nature of, of what they're doing and how their, their thought processes might well be clouded by what they've just been through. Yeah, and, and there's no bruise in the world that can hurt as much as the hurt pride. That's the that's that's the bruise that causes all the pain. You know, the bruise, the scars. Yeah, you, 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 you're in pain head to toe, and you know you're going to be in pain head to toe. But it's that hurt pride. That's 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 the pain. So just to just to round off, then let's just have a a quick look at what happened to Ricky Hatton. After that, we won't go into into any of these, obviously, in anything like the same detail. But he he came back the next year in May um, at the Manchester City football ground against Juan Lascano. Then Pauli Malinagi in New York in the November. Then Manny Pacquiao in May 2009. And we know, of course, that he did have the combat fight in, in 2012 against Vyacheslav Senchenko because it just got to the point where that itch became unbearable. He had to scratch it. He wanted some kind of, of closure on everything. But how did you view that that kind of finale to the career? Because from the outside looking in, it always seemed to me that I thought Ricky Hatton was absolutely fantastic. I, I loved him. He was amazing to watch and and just a brilliant personality. And And I'm very pleased to say that the handful of times I've met him, he has been in real life what he is on screen that really is him so you know that that's always nice isn't it because people aren't always and I just felt he was always really harshly judged by the fact that he couldn't manage to beat Floyd Mayweather uh, or Manny Pacquiao and not many people have managed to beat Manny Pacquiao nobody has managed to beat Floyd Mayweather and it, it was just an indication of how binary sports fans can be now either you're you're the absolute number one or you're nowhere. But he was the number one in his weight division at 140 pounds for, for a good spell. That's that's just how that how that was. And you can't do much better than that, can you? And don't underestimate that ability to draw those colossal numbers. You know, he gets beaten by Mayweather and then his next fight back, which I think was a very clever piece of matchmaking against Lescano, draws 58,000 people to Manchester City Stadium. And then later in the year, I thought his performance against Paulie Malinagi was one of the better performances of his career. So it looked as though at that stage that he, you know, he'd put the Mayweather defeat behind him and was back on track to, to really resurrect his career. And had he gone elsewhere, apart from into the pathway of Manny Pacquiao, it might have been a different story. But that was the nature of the man wanting to take on, you know, two of the greatest fighters that any of us have, have ever seen. 
Um, and I, I, I don't think that that period after after he lost to to Mayweather necessarily dents how we should remember him because he broke down the walls of perception as you talk about. And I think that you, you look again at that performance against Malinaji, you look across the the body of his work across his career, then it's um, he's got plenty to smile about, plenty to be proud about, no question about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Malinaji win in particular, when you look, that, that win's just got better and better in time because of what Paulie went on to achieve after that. Um, but I think when he fought Manny Pacquiao as well, I don't, I don't think his heart was really in it anymore. And, and also, you know, Floyd Mayweather Sr. was, I think, a good trainer for the Malinaji fight in the sense that he needed something fresh and he got him boxing again. And, you know, it, it was a good move that time. But I think when he went out there and he fought, he trained with him for the Pacquiao fight, you know, I, I've heard lots of stories of stuff that went on in the camp. And, you know, I know he was sparring guys like Ezra Landy, Lara, you know, big super welterweight, Southport, or, you know, sparring five rounds with another guy first, then stick him in. And, and Ricky was you know, coming off second best in those spars, of course he was, and then his confidence was hitting the floor, he lost belief and faith in Mayweather, Lee Beard was doing bits with him, it was, it was a circus, really, you know, by right, really, he should have pulled out of the fight and gone again, but, you know, it's hard when you, you when you're, when you got these massive events, when all this work's gone in, all these promotions gone in, and, it, and the fans, you know, have all booked tickets and sold out, you're thinking he'll pull out, this is not going to happen again, and, you know, you're, you're hoping for the best. And Ricky was someone, you know, he, he, he probably, Ricky would have been an on-the-night fighter. You know, he wasn't, a, a, they weren't, he was never going to be someone that was the best sparer in the world, even though, even though I've seen him have loads of good spars. But you know what I mean? He was someone that could be, drag out a performance on the night. But I think that the camp, the, the whole training camp for the, uh, the Pacquiao, I wasn't over there, but I've heard of people who were, and, you know, it, it, it was shambolic, really. He, he, he he weren't in a good place going into that Pacquiao fight, definitely not. And I, I remember being in change rooms with him because I watched Manny Pacquiao get gloved up. I was the guy to say, yeah, sign off with the commission. And then I went back into Ricky's change rooms and I remember saying to him, because I could see Ricky was very nervous, and I said to him, I said, he's really nervous in there about Manny Pacquiao. And he goes, oh, is he? Is he? He wasn't. Do you know what I mean? I was just saying that to him to try and give him a lift. And, um, yeah, I think Ricky, he went out first round. He got, did he get put down in the first, was it? Was it the second? I can't remember. I think he was down in the first round twice. Yeah. So he got hurt towards the end of it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it was It was, it was never going to, it was, the right was on the wall then. So what about, what about Mayweather then? Final word goes, goes to him because he was just an extraordinary operator on every single level. Hatton was a once in a lifetime kind of fighter given the, given the all-round package, a once-in-a-career fighter for, for a broadcaster uh, like yourself, Mike. I'm sure you would you would agree with that, with, with the numbers that he brought and the excitement that he managed to generate. And, and, and Mayweather was every bit as extraordinary, uh, if not more so, of course, on the boxing front, but in a different kind of way. Uh, did he ever... He was never slow to congratulate himself on his own achievements. And I've never got any problem with that because you're, you're the man in the arena. You're the one who goes out there and, and, and does that. And, and you're perfectly at liberty to, to stake your claim to be the best ever if, if that's, if that's what, what you want to do. But I always got the feeling that had he allowed himself to be forced into a mission impossible, the likes of which Kelbrook took against Golovkin, for example, if he'd allowed himself to be forced up to middleweight which was obviously way too big for him and he'd lost to someone in a heroic effort 
he'd be much more loved now than he actually is because he was never going to do any of that. But I think he calculated that that was love he could do without. You know, this is this is the man who was was dismissed as a gangster from the streets, you know, with uh, drugs in the background of his mum and dad and who bought out his contract from Bob Arum because Bob Arum couldn't see the audience that he wanted to be aimed at. Bob Arum admits that to this day, that he would talk to friends like Jesse Jackson and, and just couldn't work out what Mayweather was talking about in terms of wanting to aim himself at a very different audience. He wasn't looking necessarily for that kind of love, but he was looking for respect. And I think it's fascinating looking at the end of the fight against Hatton as to how much that meant to Mayweather, just how serious a threat he felt clearly that Hatton was. For all that people dismiss the Hatton challenge because in the end, Mayweather on the judges' scorecards won eight of the nine rounds on two of the cards and seven of the nine rounds on the other card. If you look at him right at the end when Cortez stops the fight, he looks up skywards for a long time and there's this mixture of ecstasy and relief. That was a massive, massive challenge as far as Mayweather himself was concerned. So he he presented himself with many a challenge down the years. And I, I genuinely find it almost funny it, it, because it, it it's so annoying that people talk about Floyd Mayweather as somebody who carefully handpicked opponents that were either too young or too old. So Sal Canelo Alvarez was an established world champion. But of course, when he fought Mayweather, he was too young. Then you talk about Manny Pacquiao was too old. Juan Manuel Marquez was too old. Miguel Cotto was too old. So Manny Pacquiao goes on to do what he's done since. Beats Tim Bradley on points, beats Adrian Broner and whatever he's done. Miguel Cotto goes on to win the world middleweight title. Alvarez goes on to do what he's done Marquez goes on to knock out Pacquiao. You look at what they've done since, and it just makes makes any sense that Mayweather was handpicking opponents when they were finished. Just reduces it to to the to the ridiculous. And and without question, he's he's the best man I've seen at ringside. Matt, you were talking earlier about Sugar Ray Leonard and and those moments in the fight against Hatton. When I think and, and you agree that Leonard would have gone and got Hatton and maybe finished him earlier on. Um, that's not necessarily a knock on Mayweather, but I do think it's that kind of all-round intensity that, that Leonard had that elevates him above Mayweather for me. But in terms of who I have seen at ringside, Floyd Mayweather is unquestionably the best. And I think, I think I'm privileged. That I, I mentioned earlier at the point when I became correspondent for the BBC, as you know, I also work in athletics, and I've been so blessed that the careers of... Usain Bolt and Floyd Mayweather have kind of grown almost in unison. They've moved from being very talented, from being the best in the world to global superstars. And, and I've learned so much from being around them without getting anywhere near close to either of them. Just about how the very best can make the most important events seem like, in Mayweather's case, sparring or Usain Bolt's case looked like he's just doing a 200 metres repetition in training. And they can, they can transfer that kind of attitude from the training track or the ring in sparring to the big night under the lights. And that's, 
that's such an important component in the very best in the world. And I've been lucky enough to have been around both of those at that time in, in, in their development from, from great sportsmen to, to global superstars. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, with Mayweather? When people talk about Mayweather picking and choosing or, you know, they're trying to knock him about the Canelo fight he was young and they're trying to, like, take the shine off some of his wins. But like you say, then, it was like when we talked about Hatton and the Malinaji win. Look what Malinaji went to do after that. Actually makes that performance all the more better. And a lot of Floyd's wins, you know, people at the time probably didn't appreciate how good they were. But you look at what Cotto did after that. You know, so went up on a, a middleweight title. But... It's it's a funny one. What you mentioned about Barbarian admitting, into it. so when he when he beat De La Hoya and then he beat Hatton, and as we said about the twenty four sevens and the characters and, and old backstories, and he piggybacked probably off the the, the the fan base of De La Hoya, and then also with Hatton. But he he his superstar had just jumped to a completely different level, and he bought the contract back off Barbarian, and of course at top rank, he was promoted Pretty Boy Floyd. And when he went with Al Heyman, who came from the music background, Beyonce and Jay-Z and all that, he went to Money Mayweather. And that's the, and, and Bob Arum says it to this day, he said, I've got to admit, I didn't see it. I didn't, I missed it. I didn't see the urban marketing thing with Mayweather. He said, but, you know, Heyman obviously did because of the music connection. And he just went to that another level in terms of superstardom. But with, as you said, Mike and, 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 you know, I, I never seen, obviously, Sugar Ray Leonard box I was too young, and I, but he was, I, was, I was a big Leonard fan when I was young, watching the old fights and that. But with, and, and I trained alongside Manny Pacquiao. I never sparred with him, but I was in the gym every day for weeks watching him in the wild card when he was at the absolute peak of his career, when he was training for the Clotty fight and the Margarito fights. So I was in the gym those times watching him train. and But without a doubt, and it's not even close, in my opinion, Floyd Mayweather is by far the best fighter I've ever seen up close live. What, what he managed to achieve, as, as you've both just outlined there, was just the whole, the all-round package of it was absolutely amazing because if you think about it, the numbers he did on pay-per-view, the audiences he managed to generate, the vast majority of them are casual boxing fans, maybe just general sports fans who don't know particularly much about boxing. And for them... Mayweather couldn't really have been that good to watch because he wasn't, due to the fact that he would win comfortably, generally, on points, he couldn't, for that audience, surely have been that good to watch. But they kept coming back and they kept coming back because the people who loved him just wanted to see him keep winning and he made a massive thing of the O and the 49 and O, which was which was very, very shrewd. And then you've got a lot of other people who maybe didn't really hate him or anything, but just wanted to see if anyone could ever beat him and you remember the kind of the credit that Marcos Maidana got and then the rematch he got off the back of the performance in the in their first fight because he for a couple of rounds managed to make him look vaguely uncomfortable I mean we were all grasping at massive straws weren't we as as kind of sports fans but that's that's what he managed to do yeah and go back go back go back and watch the Corrales fight or the Gennaro Hernandez fight or the Manfredi fight, you know, the, you know, these he was bouncing them off the canvas, you know what I mean? He had loads of really the, the Emmanuel Augustus fight, mate. Like you say, he proved it in the Hatton fight. I think that the, the Hatton win was probably one, you know, for a while, or, or certainly for the ones after that, you know, we use the word fan friendly, 
was a real fan-friendly performance. But if you go back a little bit earlier in his career, he had loads of really fan-friendly fights. Absolutely. And after one point um, while I was watching the, uh, the Hatton fight again a couple of days ago, Matt, was that by the time he got to Hatton, so he's, you know, he's moving his way up through the weights, he was kind of throwing single punches a lot. You know, the combinations of days gone by um, were, were part of his history, partly because he had such brittle hands, but also because he'd moved up in weight um, and, and A, didn't want to stay too close to the opponent, you know, didn't, didn't, want, to, didn't want to expose himself to, to anything loose uh, as, he, as he moved up through the weights. And, and it was interesting looking at a lot of the hand fight where he relied on, on single punches. That check left hook and single right hands were, were really really potent for him in that fight but going back to what you were saying Andy about you know how he connected with a, a certain kind of audience I think before before he, he bought out that contract you know I remember uh, watching from afar the press conference after he beat Carlos Baldemir which I think was the last fight before he took on Oscar De La Hoya so you know the last fight before he became the Mayweather money man if you like and he was almost in tears at the press conference because he got booed out of the ring and, and, and was basically castigating fans for not understanding just how good he was. So there was already that audience there, that, that base that didn't like him, whether it was the personality or the style of boxing. That was already there. What he saw was the audience that did want to watch him. And in the end, you had that crossover that every promoter dreams of. You've got somebody who... People will pay to watch beat and people will pay to watch win. And so he had that, that urban demographic that you talk about, Matt, that wanted him to win. And there was still that, that audience from, from, if you like, his previous life, his previous career, that wanted to see him beaten. And they all tuned in, in in colossal numbers, you know, generating more than a billion dollars in, in pay-per-view revenue, you know, for, for a man who probably belonged in another era in terms of the way he boxed. He would have been much more celebrated in the 50s and 60s, the way he boxed. And yet he he produced such revenue for, for himself and for so many other businesses associated with his rise. And then rounded the whole thing off by managing to get paid about $300 million for a fight that he couldn't ever possibly lose, which, well, that's good work if you can get it. Uh, we can talk so, for another hour, couldn't we? About we 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 spoke about perceptions in the build-up. I mean, what struck me was I, I'm always fascinated by the odds and how they move during fight week. And it was interesting during the Hatton fight week when all the all the Brits arrived. Hatton's price just nosedived because everybody was having their ten bucks or whatever on. And then all the shrewdies, the massive gamblers, waited until the Saturday and then loaded up on, on Mayweather because they got a much better price than they otherwise would have done because every one of the Brits had their $10 or whatever on, on Hatton. And so that, that reduced Hatton's price. But it was just, you know, the way, the way that Conor McGregor built that fight on social media. Now, that couldn't have been done in 2007. That fight couldn't have happened in 2007, but it was built on, on social media. And by the time the fight came around, in fight week, he was seven to two. He was three and a half to one. Tyson Fury was bigger odds to beat Vladimir Klitschko. How, how, how do you work that out? But it was because of the bookmakers' liabilities. So many of McGregor's fans actually thought that the man could win the fight. You know, to, to all of us, it was, 
it was head shaking time, but it was happening. There in fight week, it, it, it was happening. This belief was there. It's that word though, isn't it? Hype. And McGregor had the hype. I remember being in a bar in New York because I flew from New York to Vegas to work the fight for Sky. Me and my dad were in New York, and because I was living, I was over there at the time. I was managing Michael Conlon, and I was going into certain bars every, you know, every other day. And a mate of mine owns a bar just down from Madison Square Garden, so we'd eat in there. Anyway, this kid from Mayo was working behind the bar, so I walk in, and he's and me and my dad are at the bar, and he comes over with a proper spring in his step, and he goes, "Come on, lads, let's have a bet." Uh, you know, and I said, what are you on about? And he said, no, you're obviously back in uh, Mayweather. I said, yeah. I said, that's not a fight. I said, that's an exhibition. He said, you're joking, aren't you? He said, listen, as soon as McGregor hits him, you know, those four-ounce gloves and blah, blah. And I'm like, are you, are you being serious? And he was like, <laughs> he was deadly serious. And I was like, mate, I, I, I don't want to take your money. You know what I mean? And he, he made me have a bet with him. I didn't end up taking the money off him. I think my dad's still chasing him around New York somewhere. But I didn't, you know. <laughs> I just said, I couldn't believe that he really wanted to have a bet. Like, he wanted a couple hundred dollars on it, you know what I mean? And I was like, like I can't, but, you know, it was, it was flabbergasting, but, you know, you know what it was? I think the, the, the UFC have got a bit of a cult following anyway. And, of course, yeah. McGregor just had all the... Anyone that was Irish and an MMA fan couldn't possibly see Mayweather beating him. He thought... McGregor was like a god and because he predicted a few things and it had happened, like the Aldo one said he was going to do him and then he ends up doing him in like eight yeah. seconds. You know, you know what I mean? He had, he had the hype train was just on full throttle. But yeah, it, 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 you know, listen, I think anyone, all of us knew, didn't we? None of us, we just thought this is a, like a, non, a non-contest. Yeah, I think it was one of those occasions when the odds reflected the money that was being put on rather than the general feeling as to as to yeah. how the fight would go. But you know, you two have just lost half of your subscribers. If if my experience is anything to go by, as soon as you start talking Mayweather, McGregor, in any kind of serious tone, everybody said, okay, you know, you, you're not on my list of, of must-listen-tos anymore. No, I know. You well, lose for, your the record, for, for the record, I was very much <laughs> saying this is an exhibition about well, I remember. I, I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna out hipster the pair of you here, but I'm gonna hipster you into the fucking ground because when that fight was going on, I was at the World Amateur Championships in Hamburg. How worthy am I? I was watching proper boxing. You were poncing about in Las Vegas, getting involved in all of this stuff, and I actually didn't watch it because the hotel I was I was staying in. I did try and see if they were going to put it on because um, I was curious. I was curious as to how long it was going to last, basically, and, and as to how long he might carry him for, because that's the only way I could see it lasting any any kind of length of time. And they couldn't they couldn't manage... That's what he did, he carried yeah. him. Yeah, they, they couldn't, couldn't manage to do it. it. Me and Big Rom were over there, me and Big Rom McIntosh, so uh, the pair of us, the pair of us missed out on that one. So I was going to wrap it up there, but, but as is generally my way... Um, as we've got you, Mike, and you really don't have anything to do. You know, we all know that because you're quarantining. You're quarantining ahead of his Usyk Chisora. So by the time this goes out, that will have been and gone. So there's no point talking about that. But um, th- there's some there's some big stuff coming up between between now and Christmas. We we touched briefly on the on the no crowds and and how it affects us doing our job. Um, that's just a reality. We're not complaining because we're delighted to be back ringside again. But it is it is different. Uh, coming up shortly, though, we've got that White Povetkin 
rematch. And, and of course, you were there ringside, uh, as were as were me and Matt for the for the original bout back in in August. And that that was a that was a strange old spectacle, wasn't it? You know, the fight camp setting was was pretty spectacular, but to watch to watch a fight like that in an environment and setting like that, kind of out the back of what looks like a a stately home, it kind of took me back to books I've read about the old bare knuckle days where it was illegal and you had to get away from the police and have it in a field somewhere in the middle of nowhere before the constabulary arrived and all just threw you out. It was it was it was almost like that, the wind kind of whistling through the trees and you've got these two fellas um going up against each other and then Povetkin just produces that that uppercut and, and, and Anthony Joshua was there that night and you and Buncey had a had a chat with him. I mean it was it was a mad one that, wasn't it? You know, when you think about all the things that you've done, you know, that was that that'll have a place there probably because you may well never see anything like that again. Yeah, and there was that momentary silence when when Pavekin landed and Dillian White's on the deck. And there was that momentary silence that that maybe would have been there anyway, whatever the size of the crowd, that sudden almost a hush as, as people just take in what's happening. And then there would have been, you know, the reaction in the crowd. And I think, again, that's, you know, that's what a night like that was missing. But it, it, it was strange. It is strange. I'm actually surprised that we've got such a frenetic end to the year. And there is, you know, there's a, there's a buzz building about the end of the year, even though it's happening without crowds. At least it's, you know, to use Frank Warren's phrase from from just as we were coming out of lockdown and the first shows were happening, the sport has had to remain relevant. And, and that's happening as, as we, we build up to Christmas. And who knows, look, by December the 13th, hopefully we're all getting really giddy about Joshua against Fury for some time in, in 2021. And, and that then will give us, hopefully, a, a renewed sense of excitement about what might... And when we'll, we'll know more then about the potential for crowds as well. I mean, it seems to be... The guidelines, restrictions seem to be changing almost daily. So who knows what lies ahead? And 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 also, um, you know, I think the last time I saw you face to face, Andy, was at the Olympic qualifier back in March. It seems like another world ago. But you know, we've got the Tokyo Olympics hopefully next year, and the, and the next the next generation waiting to to break through. So there's there's so much to to look forward to. But I'm just hoping that a lot of it happens with some people watching. Like we, we're obviously just talked in depth about that the, the Mayweather Hatton fight and what a massive fight it was. You know, certainly probably the biggest or one of the biggest in the last twenty five years in, in, involving uh, you know a fighter from Britain. But and we talked about it being on a whole other level. Will is the Fury AJ fight? Is that just going to be on another level again? I, I absolutely think it is. Yeah, I I agree with something you said earlier on though, Matt. That that where it is could be important. I don't think it will be as big if it is in Saudi Arabia, where there just isn't, even even if you get the place packed out with mainly local fans, there just isn't that habit of watching top-line sport and jumping off your seat and getting on the edge of your seat. There just isn't that that nature it, and, and, and not often enough. And I saw that in the build-up to the the Joshua rematch, I went to the World Athletics Championships in Doha, um, virtually next door to, to Saudi Arabia. And it was the same there for, for the World Athletics Championships for the first two and three nights that the stadium was virtually empty. 
uh, and then they encouraged the local migrant workers to come in for for the rest of the championships to to make it look presentable. There, there just isn't that that culture of watching big time sport with massive crowds. So I think you know that kind of fight. Let's say, for example, as Bob Arum has been mentioning, and at the Allegiant Stadium, the new NFL stadium in Vegas, that becomes absolutely massive. I, I think in 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 terms of um, single day sports events in the UK. In my lifetime, I, I can't think of a of a bigger one. There's the World Cup in '66 was was a, a tournament. The Olympics in 2012 were were monster big. But in terms of a one day sports event, um, I'm struggling to think of anything that that would have been bigger. And and you can imagine that that the build up might well start on December the 13th. So going back to Hatton and Mayweather, you know, you had such a long build up that even if you wanted to avoid any news about the fight, you, you know, you'd have to make an effort to avoid news because there was so much of it around. And I do think AJ against against Fury, if they both win, of course, in in, in December, and and how they perform will also add to the build up. But I I just think two Brits for every one of the belts, and let's bear in mind, in the era of four belts, no heavyweight has ever held all four of them. So there's that element of history added to it as well. Um, I, I think it could be just so so big. Absolutely, absolutely. It would it would be massive. Uh, any word you you care to use to de- to describe it, and I don't think there are too many things that can rival it. Andy Murray winning Wimbledon, that Wimbledon Sunday, the final Sunday. But that's the that's the conclusion of a tournament, as you say. And this is one of the things that makes that makes boxing so unique. You get this match made, you get this fight sorted out, and then all eyes are on it, and the focus gets more and more intense with every day that that goes by. So we will indeed leave it there, Mike. Thanks very much for, for joining us for this one. We'll be doing some more of these, as, as I said a few a few weeks ago. We'll pick out some more fights. One, one that we're really keen to do, actually, is um, Tyson Douglas from Tokyo back in early 1990. The difficulty with that is that I've been reading... There's a really good book about that fight, the, the, uh, the last great fight by Joseph Layden, I think the, the author's name is. But... Not that many press went to it. So finding someone who was actually there, who's a dedicated boxing writer or, or someone doing what we do is, is, not, is not the easiest thing in the world to do. But we will get there. We will get there. And there are plenty of others to, to pick out as, uh, as well. So, Mike, thanks very much for your time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Matt, Likewise, great fun guys, as always. And we will catch you all again pretty soon down the road if you manage to get onto iTunes and give us a rate and give us a review that would be great and in the meantime in the meantime take it easy and old Lucy Brown yes that line falls on the right babe not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.